Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode of the Single Tracks podcast is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health conscious people like you get special life insurance rates. Go to healthiq.com slash singletracks to support the show and to learn more. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Aaron and Greg and I are going to be doing sort of a roundup of the news from 2017 as it pertains to mountain biking. Every Monday, each member of the Singletrack staff shares what they learned from the previous week. And this is actually a really important part of what we do and who we are. And the upshot is we get to learn a lot of stuff and we're surprised by things that we learn on a pretty regular basis. So again, as 2017 is wrapping up, we're here to talk about the things that blew our minds this year. So I'm going to start it off by asking Greg and Aaron, which new bike surprised you the most this year? I was actually most surprised by Pivot launching an e-bike uh, this year. And I guess I was just surprised because I didn't really expect Pivot to jump on the e-bike bandwagon because they're pretty much just a mountain bike brand. They have one gravel bike and... While technically it's not available in the U.S., I guess I was still shocked. Not necessarily, you know, no judgment. I was just surprised by it. Partially because a lot of what I see is like these core small mountain bike brands are still some of the e-bike holdouts. Like brands like Yeti, Transition, there's Salsa and Surly, Santa Cruz, and some others. And, you know, Pivot was sort of in this list of boutique mountain bike brands, Ibis. But then they launch an e-bike, so I just thought that was pretty surprising. Uh, Rocky Mountain also did an e-bike this year, which, again, I was a bit surprised by. But they're a touch bigger of a brand. I mean, maybe when you're sort of in that boutique market, you know, the size isn't a huge difference. But uh, so it could also just be because I'm not fully on board with the e-bike thing yet. So I just get surprised by it. Yeah, I'd I'd agree. I think um, I was not expecting to see an e-bike from Pivot just – based on the rest of the bikes that they have and kind of their size. You'd think being a smaller brand, that would be a big jump for them, but maybe not. Like As you said, we're seeing e-bikes from some of these mid-level brands in terms of size. You know, Comments All had an e-bike this year. Orange did as well out of the UK, which was really surprising as well. But what I, what I picked as far as like an unusual bike would probably be the Polygon Square One and the Marin Wolf Ridge, they share a suspension platform, and we wrote pretty extensively about both of these bikes earlier this year when they were launched around Sea Otter, so you can go go online and uh, check out pictures and everything, but they're just, they're really, it's a interesting take um, on what a mountain bike can and should do, and you know, both are fairly long travel bikes. The Polygon's a 27.5 with like 180 mil of travel, I think. And the Wolf Ridge is a 29er with 160. Uh, so, you know, you think going based on that, that they'd be kind of strictly in that all mountain enduro category. But according to the brands, they aren't. Yeah, I don't think they necessarily set the world quite on fire quite as, uh, quite as much as the companies anticipated, but I, they're still really unique bikes. Yeah, that's a good pick. As 
our readers, uh, I think, would agree with you as well. That was one of the most innovative bikes of the year. For me, the bike that kind of surprised me the most, and maybe it shouldn't, uh, came from Diamondback. And Diamondback is a brand that's generally associated with sort of lower-end, entry-level mountain bikes, um, not necessarily on the performance side. But this year, Diamondback released a couple of carbon bikes. The bike is actually called the Release. There's the Release 4C and the 5C, and they're really affordable, which is in keeping with Diamondback's brand. Uh, but, but you can get the Diamondback Release 4C for under $3,000, and it's a full carbon frame. You know, the front and the rear triangle is carbon. comes with a dropper post. It's got everything that most trail riders are going to want, and it's only 3000 bucks. You know, I haven't had a chance to ride the bike yet, but it's definitely really interesting and, and it's surprising again to see it from a company that's not necessarily focused on what we would consider the higher end of the mountain bike spectrum. Switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you guys about any discoveries that you made on the trail this year. Did either of you guys get a chance to get out and ride new places or find cool new stuff out there? I did personally. I got uh, found a ton of really cool backcountry trails up in uh, North Georgia this summer. Spent a lot of time studying Google Earth, looking at Strava heat maps, just exploring, getting lost. And the whole the whole experience was really rewarding. You know, I found rad new trails to ride, but it also got me out of the routine of kind of just going up there and riding the same trails over and over and over. So it was a lot of fun, but it was also I would say almost frustrating just from the perspective that there's when you ride up there and you see some of these trails there's just so much untapped potential in north georgia i don't think anyone would consider us a mountain bike destination but we and we don't have the the elevation of the western states but the terrain we have is really good uh you know you have everything from roots and rocks and really steep ups and downs so there's just there's a lot of potential up there. You know, we have some great trails currently, but they're all kind of isolated in their own little pockets across uh, North Georgia. But there just there just could be so much more trail there, and there could be a lot more connectivity between the regions. I think I would. That's definitely true. You know, I lived in Dahlonega for about five years, and Aaron, I know you did a lot of riding up there. But there's this whole area, sort of north of Dahlonega, north and a little bit east where there's hundreds of miles of single track. But the problem is it's just all off limits to bikes. And you start looking at the map and you're like, wow, this is incredible, but you can't bike any of it. You know, like there's so much that could be done, um, but maybe it's just uphill battle. I don't know. What about you, Greg? Did you find anything out in your neck of the woods? You know, I love exploring new trails, but probably the one best uh, new-to-me trail I found this year is a section of the Colorado Trail not too far from here, and it's called Searle Pass. Uh, it has a gorgeous high alpine ridge traverse in it, some ripping single track um, back down. But what makes it really interesting is you actually spend quite a bit of time above treeline on this trail, which is rarer than you'd think it'd be in Colorado. You know, that's one of the reasons trails like the Monarch Crest are so popular, because it spends a lot of time above treeline, whereas a lot of other trails just go straight up and straight back down. But Cerro Pass, it's not a shuttle. You, know, you have to do a big heck of a climb, but you spend a lot of time up there, which is rewarding. And I did it during a bike pack ride, but others were doing it as a day ride, and I definitely should go back and do it as a day ride because it'd be a lot more fun on the way down. (laughs) 
What about you, Jeff? Any good trails this year? Yeah, I mean, this year I stuck pretty close to home for the most part, but one of my favorite discoveries was uh, when I discovered that a trail that I thought had been bulldozed and was destroyed actually wasn't. This is actually, this is one of my favorite trails that I ride on a pretty regular basis. And somehow a rumor got started that the trail system had been bulldozed. And um, a lot of us are really bummed about it. And so we just, we just stopped even, you know, trying to go out there and ride it. And then one night, I don't remember who it was, but somebody was like, Hey, let's, let's go over there and see, you know, what happened to the trail. And we go over and the trails back. Somebody had fixed it up and rebuilt it. And so, yeah, I was really stoked to get back on the trail, the trail that I thought was long gone. Yeah, the uh, real estate market in and around Atlanta is just booming right now. So a lot of our in-town single track has been getting bulldozed, unfortunately, which has been a sad development. So glad to hear one of them <laughs> made it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's funny, too, because some of these trails, they just kind of appear overnight and you're not really sure who built them or you know what they're for but we ride them and nobody tells us we can't ride them so that's kind of the way it stands and yeah from time to time stuff gets built or conditions change and it's just really cool to see it the trails themselves adapt and see people get really creative that's one of the things that that I like about riding these kinds of trails is seeing how trail builders come up with unique solutions to construction and trees falling and stuff like that. So related to trail access and advocacy, uh, on a trip to BC, I discovered something really interesting about the advocacy up there. And that is that basically the local advocates and trail maintenance people, they get paid. Like the cities in BC pay them, the region, the county, whatever you want to call it. They pay the trail maintenance people, uh, tour operators pay them. And I was just shocked. I was like, you know, what could we do in the U.S. if we actually like paid our local clubs and it wasn't volunteer only, you know, fundraising efforts, but they actually like had money coming in? Like it would be wild. Like there are a couple of towns in the U.S. that do this, but it's pretty rare. Whereas BC, it's like, why wouldn't you pay the people that do all the trail work? Because <laughs> they're working. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wonder where they get all their money. That I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, that reminds me of in Wisconsin. I remember hearing from uh, some of the folks at Canva that they some of the summers they would get a trail crew of like juvenile delinquents. Like these were kids that <laughs> had to serve time or do some kind of community service. And so uh, one of the things that like checked that box was to do trail work. So yeah, maybe we could maybe we could get some delinquents to help us build trails. So let's get a little deep here. What did you guys learn about yourselves this year, at least as it pertains to mountain biking? One thing I learned about myself is that I miss endurance riding. Uh, I tried to dabble in a few slightly longer rides this year. Um, for some backstory, I've had a lot of injuries over the past few years. I tried to push the boundaries this year, but I basically spent the entire 2017 riding season without an ACL in my right knee. So while it didn't hold me back significantly on shorter rides, when I tried to push my distance boundaries much past six hours, my knee just couldn't hack it. So I decided not to overdo it and destroy my knee, but part of what I realized is that I missed you know, pushing my own boundaries on those like longer and longer and longer rides. And that provided me a little extra motivation to get knee surgery this fall. So hopefully more of that next year. We'll see. 
Um, but related to this, I also learned for myself that I really enjoy bike packing. Like I had a blast on both the bike packing trips I did this year. Love to add more of that into my just personal routine for 2018 and beyond. And finally, I'll just keep rolling. <laughs> uh, my balance between riding trails that I know are going to be rad and getting out and exploring unknown terrain is a tough one to strike for myself. Like in 2016, I think I pushed too hard to explore just new trails like every weekend and almost every ride, uh, which turned most rides into like a hike a bike adventure, which is good sometimes, but it can be really draining. But then 2017, I actually think I spent too much time riding like the Monarch Crest and Associated Trails and other trails I've ridden before and not enough time exploring. So it's a pretty fine balance, I guess, for me personally. Yeah, that's really related to the thing that I was going to mention. Um, you know, when I was in my 20s, like I I had to ride like as many new trails as I possibly could. And I would, I'm embarrassed to admit this now, but like I look down on people who didn't ride new trails all the time, people who would just ride like the same trails over and over. Um, that just seemed dumb to me. I didn't understand it. And for me, like back then riding a trail for a second time, was it just seemed like a wasted opportunity. Like I literally, if there was a trail I had ridden before, I'd rather not ride at all than, yeah, ride a trail a second time, which looking back, it sounds really crazy. But like now I'm finding that I can get just as much enjoyment and excitement from riding familiar trails. And again, I still love to explore and find new stuff, but what I'm finding is that the trails themselves are what change, right? So like, it doesn't have to be a new place, but if you go to the same place over and over and you start to really pay attention, you'll notice stuff changes. You know, trees fall and trails get eroded a little bit and new rocks surface out of the trail and, you know, it'll snow or there, there's going to be leaves on the ground or it might be wet or it might be super dry. You know, you never, you just never know what you're going to find. And I've had a really good time this year sort of discovering that really for the first time. This isn't even, yeah, I think I was just oblivious to this back in my 20s. But the other sort of related thing with that for me is that, you know, I've got two younger kids and my youngest is starting to get into mountain biking or biking, I guess I should say, which is giving me more time to really like slow down and just kind of mess around on my bike again and session stuff. You know, again, I'm not in such of a hurry as I used to be where my goal was always to like, cover as many miles as I can and as many new trails. Now I can spend an afternoon at the park, like practicing wheelies. And I think I mentioned this, I don't even remember what year it was. We talked about in the podcast, like our goals for the year. And one of my goals was to learn how to wheelie. And I didn't do it, whatever year that was, 2015, 2016, never learned to wheelie. But this year I'm actually getting pretty good because spending the time focusing on it. And yeah, it's actually pretty fun. That's awesome. For me, this year was a big growth year, I guess, in terms of uh, mountain biking. For one, I rode more miles this year than I probably ever have before. I did set a mileage goal of 5,000, but uh, I'm going to come up a little bit short, about 4,500 miles for the year. But that's still about 500 miles more than I typically get on a, on a solid year. I usually get around 4,000 miles. And I don't know the exact breakdown, but a large percentage of those rides were off-road than previous years as well. 
So all that to say, they were hard miles. Um, <laughs> you know, I rode, still rode a fair amount on the road, but um, not nearly as much as I had in years past. And just one of the things that comes from spending so much time on the bike, just my skills overall improved tremendously. So endurance, but just bike handling, my really stepped it up a couple notches. And part of that was also some of the places I got to ride this year. You know, I got to ride in, in Moab. Uh, I did the Pisgah stage race, which riding in Moab really got me ready for the Pisgah stage race. And then, like I said, riding all that backcountry stuff in Georgia was really tested my uh, technical abilities on the bike. And yeah, then I got to go to Whistler in August. So yeah, just really great places I got to ride and just having the skill set to be able to ride those places and be confident and have fun, at least for the most part, because I definitely got in over my head in Whistler in a couple places. But in terms of endurance, I found out that uh, as long as I keep eating and drinking, I can ride for a ridiculously long time. <laughs> I've done some bike packing in the past, but I did some really big rides this year. The first of which was the hurricane in Florida back in February. And on that, I did 345 miles over the course of 60 hours. And granted, that wasn't all trail. Um, that was about one-third trail, one-third gravel, and one-third road. But, you know, the first day was predominantly single track. And uh, we rode, I was riding with a couple of friends, we rode from 8 a.m. until 2 a.m. and covered 155 miles, which is way farther than I've ridden in one go on a mountain bike, for sure. I also did a ride out in Colorado called a Steamboat Ramble, and that was 200 miles over three days, which was tough. But I mean, compared to even compared to the hurricane, it wasn't it wasn't nearly as bad, and it was much more manageable chunks. But the hardest thing I did this year was the Kohata Cat, and um, that was here in Georgia, and that was in early November. So that ride was 290 miles, 36,000 feet of climbing, and I finished it in about 68 hours. And like I said, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, both physically and I'd say mentally on a bike. Unfortunately, I probably pushed a little bit too hard and injured my Achilles, and that's kind of prevented me from riding since early November. I can only get out for a few miles at a time before it flares up again. So that's main, the main reason why I'm not meeting my mileage goal for uh, for 2017. But you know, so if I had to do it over again, I maybe wouldn't uh, wouldn't have pushed quite as hard. I do a couple things differently, but uh, you know, I definitely don't regret any of it either. I think it's pretty clear that Aaron wins 2017 for the discoveries <laughs> on the trail. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, you definitely pushed yourself really far, and yeah, that's awesome. That's what it's all about. Okay, after the break, we're going to talk about the news articles and headlines of this year that surprised us the most, and we're also going to talk about some of the top trends of 2017. Stay tuned. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for mountain bikers. Just like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. Hey, Aaron, what's the longest mountain bike ride you've ever done? It's pretty long, Jeff. I think it was like 345 miles. Whoa, got me beat. Personally, my first and last 100-mile bike ride was the Cajuta 100. Turns out that Health IQ looks at mountain bike race finishes to help you get a great rate on a life insurance policy. 
That's right, Jeff. You don't necessarily have to ride 100 miles either. If you're racing or even just riding regularly, you can share that data with Health IQ to get exclusive rates from top life insurance companies. In fact, 56% of Health IQ's customers saved money on their life insurance. Savings can be pretty substantial, up to 33% for qualifying individuals, which should free up some cash for that carbon wheel upgrade I've been wanting to do. You should definitely upgrade. So how does the process work? It's actually pretty simple. Visit healthiq.com slash singletracks, enter some basic information, and a Health IQ agent will call you to walk you through the process to get a quote. And they'll continue helping through the entire process of selecting a policy. They won't just forward you on to an insurer. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash singletracks and be sure to mention the promo code singletracks when you talk to one of their helpful agents. Welcome back. So, guys, what's the news article or headline that caught you the most off guard this year, 2017? How about you, Greg? For me, it would have to be Alberta's uh, barbed liar story scandal. That totally took me by surprise because we've seen a lot of instances of trail sabotage over the past year or two. So when a story came out of BC, dude says he runs into a barbed wire fence that's been put across a trail. First, it sounds pretty legit. But then as the locals start digging into it, they're like, this story doesn't hold together. And slowly the story unwound to the point where it turns out Dude made it up like he ran into a barbed wire fence while riding a four-wheeler on private property, not on this public mountain bike trail. And then I'm still not sure why he like decided to to do all this, but got charged with fraud and uh, pretty wild stuff. Like you can't make this up. Like, you know, you can never understand what goes through the heads of these people. But that was definitely a twist I was not expecting in that story. Yeah, we covered it a little bit on single tracks, but if you want like – the you know blow by blow kind of in depth reporting. You should definitely go check out uh, NSMB because Cam McRae from NSMB actually had a couple really long Facebook messaging exchanges with the guy, and yeah, you can just see how his story just falls apart and is all over the place. It's it, it was fascinating to <laughs> to watch. Really, I mean, it was just so weird and wild, and like you said, like you can't you'd have a hard time making up something so ridiculous. Yeah, didn't the guy flee the country too? Like he's he's out of Canada now. Yeah, I think that's the last I heard because he wasn't. Yeah, he he wasn't um, he wasn't originally from Canada. I think he was either from Eastern Europe or somewhere around Greece, something like that. Anyway, yeah, he was. They issued a warrant for his arrest, and he was like, "Deuces, I'm out of here." Crazy story. Wow, I missed that last bit. So another thing that I think is pretty fascinating, and it's partially because it's just fresh in my mind, and it's possibly a bit too early to comment on this definitively just yet, but there's some serious progress being made on the wilderness legislation that the Sustainable Trails Coalition has been working on. And we've interviewed the STC on the podcast before, and we've covered it a lot in the past, but I looked back and we started covering the STC when they came into existence, but that was in August of 2015. So they've been working on this thing for two and a half years, about two and a half years, which is pretty impressive. But, you know, there's not much news for like years and then boom, all of a sudden something happens, you know, and it's like all this work they've been putting in behind the scenes. And to recap briefly, one of their bills going through the House, H.R. 1349, you know, they introduced it a while back. Not, not much was going on, but it came before the House Natural Resources Committee. 
And after a really close call, it was just passed um, by the committee, I believe yesterday or the day before. It'll be a while by the time you hear this podcast, though. So that's pretty fresh in mind. But the other thing that's really shocking about it is just IMBA's approach to this stance. And they said that they do not support the bill, but they also are trying to say they do not oppose the bill either. And trying to dig into that nuance and hopefully we'll have a more detailed article by the time you hear this. Yeah, definitely a lot of developments there. And I think there's been, yeah, just a really big backlash against IMBA because of their their choice to come out and speak kind of against the bill when it seems like they really didn't have to say anything. It's just hard, you know, because you just hear, you hear this from IMBA, but you hear it from a lot of different companies. You know, one thing we've talked about a lot about this year is e-bike access and you always just hear that uh, from brands, um, but you know you also hear from advocacy groups that they're doing stuff behind the scenes. And sometimes, like we just we get impatient, you know. And I know Imba's done great things for mountain biking, but I mean, it's, and the wilderness issue is definitely contentious. But uh, you know, they've kind of had a little dust up with STC early on, and then it seemed like they had come to an understanding. And then you know, them commenting on this current bill just kind of seemed to throw them under the bus a little bit so don't like greg said you know we don't fully know what's going on but uh in terms of from just a public perception standpoint it wasn't uh wasn't the best move by imba yeah definitely let's hope that this is all just a big miscommunication i mean i think honestly this a, a lot of the problems that people have with imba right now do are related to communication and not really understanding what they're doing. And like you said, Greg, too, like even the STC, they made kind of a big splash two and a half years ago with this idea of bringing a bill before Congress to allow mountain bikes in certain wilderness areas. And, and then we didn't hear a lot from them. You know, we did hear from them saying, we need more money, we need more money. But yeah, nothing happened. And then boom, like it happened. And clearly there's a lot of stuff in between there and we don't, we can't connect all those dots you know, about like who talked to who and who's got the power in this situation and all that stuff. So hopefully, yeah, as we learn more, there will be a little bit more understanding and it'll all make sense. But who knows? We'll definitely be following this story in 2018 for sure. I don't think this is going to go anywhere. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with it. But, you know, I would just two years seems like a long time. But I think that's at least says to me that the STC is, you know, they're making moves. They know what they're doing, at least, and they're talking to some of the right people because that's pretty fast to get, you know, some of this stuff done when you think about, you can think about how long it takes to get a trail approved at your local park. You know, that can be a years long, like several years. Ten years here in the city of Atlanta to get first mountain bike trail built. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Ten years. And that was what, like a mile long loop, maybe? Right. So, yeah, and and they're, you know, obviously going to build on that, but so two years and, you know, for something as big as possibly changing the Wilderness Act, that's uh, that's pretty rapid. Yeah, and especially when you consider that IMBA's been around for 30 years. And now we know IMBA's stance on wilderness and that they really haven't been trying to change this. But IMBA hasn't passed any major legislation of any sort, ultimately. Like they've come on as supporters of some things that are in the works. But, yeah, it's it's a big move in a short amount of time in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, definitely a really interesting developing story. 
One of the things that caught me off guard a little bit was, uh, and this is another recent one, so maybe that's why it comes to mind, but uh, the story about Niner going bankrupt or declaring bankruptcy. The whole situation to me seems kind of bizarre, sort of like the Emba thing. Yeah, well, they said they were for sale first, right? Like that was the news that broke first, or was it the other way around? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, first they said they were getting bought out by this investor group, and then like Literally the next day or two days later, they declared bankruptcy. Selling the company and declaring bankruptcy at the same time is pretty surprising. I think what we're going to see is that's going to result in some pretty difficult conversations with suppliers who are owed money and which will make sort of the brand going forward difficult, I would think. You know, if you stiff Fox on a bunch of forks, like they're not going to want to sell you more forks when you're the new and improved Niner. Um, but hopefully they're working that out. You know, the folks at Niner are really nice. I love working with them and they, they make some great bikes and stuff. You know, I really hope that, that they're able to get the resources that we, that they need. You know, we've seen the last few years, the product has gotten, I mean, I don't want to say a little bit stale, but I'm saying it a little bit stale. So yeah, hopefully with more resources, they can do a lot more. And also, I really hope that the brand is able to stay true to, sort of their roots. And obviously 29ers were a big part of the brand. Um, they sort of moved away from that in baby steps in the last couple of years to the 27.5 plus wheel size. But yeah, just, I would hate to see the new owners, you know, take it in like a electric bike direction or a all wheel size direction. Cause uh, I mean, that's kind of core to the brand. It's in their name. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I did learn something really interesting after we wrote the first little blurb about Niner going bankrupt. And there was a pretty fascinating comment that Chris Sugai, hopefully I pronounced that correctly, left on a Pink Bike article. And it was very lengthy, but basically explained that they filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And there's some very key differences between that and the chapter of bankruptcy that we normally think of, where you like default on your loans, maybe go to jail, like those sorts of things. Um, and he he claims that this is basically a reorganization and structuring of the business to allow it to be bought by these investors and that you know they're not going to put any of their distributors or any of their partners in a lurch like the company is going to keep moving forward as something businessy to do with reorganizing their assets and their liabilities so it can be sold at least that's how the current owner spins it but seems plausible to me like that makes a bit more sense to me when he's like we have to do this to restructure things so we can be bought i'm like okay yeah yeah anything's possible i think i think that's i mean that's a decent explanation you know but it does it raises a lot of questions in my mind anyway and i'm not an expert on this in general or this case in specific either but it also just seems like in some ways you could use this restructuring to like get out of deals with your dealer network and start to just sell online. I mean, you could do a lot of things by sort of hitting the reset button. So that's why I'm, I don't know, I guess a little worried about like what might happen, but maybe it'll be all good things. I really hope so. Cause again, I like Niner. Yeah. For this category, I don't know if I have a really good one. Like Greg, Greg called the uh, barbed liar one. That whole saga, like I said, was just fascinating to follow. Yeah, maybe just in terms of industry news, the, uh, the Interbikes move was a little surprising. I mean, not necessarily the fact that they moved, because I think we all knew that that was coming. I think Vegas, they had been 
toying with the idea of leaving Vegas, and then Vegas was just like, yeah, cool. Well, we rented your space for next year, so now you kind of have to move. <laughs> so, but I, so not the fact that they moved, but the venue that they chose was a little, a little surprising, I'd say. So they're moving from Las Vegas to Reno, and I think that probably left some people wanting. You know, obviously, Interbike was building this up as like this huge change and. You know, there's all these press releases and there was uh, like a conference call and then then you're like, we're moving and the city is going to be Reno. And it was kind of like, wah, 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 wah. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if, uh, if it's going to really help bring the show back or if it's just going to kind of prolong the death of the show. You know, because basically Reno is just a smaller version of Vegas. I don't know if it's going to bring back the big brands. I mean, we saw a ton of brands pull out this year. You know, that's kind of been a trend that's been happening for several years now. But I think we all noticed a huge decrease in the size of the show this year in terms of both the outdoor demo and the indoor portion of the show. I mean, the outdoor demo was ridiculously small um, compared to years past. It was maybe what, a quarter of the size that has been uh, in previous years. So I don't know. I don't know if this is going to this is gonna help bring the big brands back. I think it might be beneficial to smaller brands, more niche brands, brands without huge budgets, because there, there are certain, certain things that Reno makes easier in terms of setting up your booth and that kind of things. But for international brands, it might make it even tougher because Reno is not exactly a major airport. And I think we looked at tickets and we can't even fly directly to Reno from Atlanta. The world's largest airport. Yeah. Can't get to Reno. <laughs> Hop on a couple flights. So yeah, I think that's just going to be an added expense and added logistical challenge for some of those smaller international brands that are looking to get a foothold in the U.S. market. So I just don't know. I don't know what the future of Interbike and big trade shows like that is just in general. One thing it does seem to be, or one group of people that seems to be stoked about it is the regular attendees, you know, the bike shop people. I think a lot of people, they're excited about a new change because for, you know, if you work at a bike shop, it's business, but it's also kind of a, it's kind of a boondoggle, I guess you could say. And in years past, People would hold trade shows in Vegas because it's Vegas, right? Like Vegas is awesome, but it's lost its appeal. I don't know if it ever had its appeal for people in the bike industry, you know, people who run local bike shops. They're into outdoor stuff and Reno has that. And so maybe it's a really smart move. I don't know. You know, maybe this year they're going to break attendance records and, and then for next year, Interbike will go back to the brands and say, look, we just doubled the number of people that are here. You need to be here in front of those people selling your stuff, you know? Cause I think the, despite any challenges or even costs to doing a trade show for the brands, like at the end of the day, if there are people there that are buying stuff and that, you know, are their key constituents, then they're going to find a way to get there. So maybe this is a brilliant move to get people back into attending trade shows. Possibly. I mean, they are, they're doing the demo, the outdoor portion of the show at Tahoe, which I think definitely appeals to a lot of people. I mean, the, the riding at Bootleg Canyon outside of Vegas is fun, but it's definitely no Tahoe. And they are doing a consumer day at Tahoe as part of it. So one day will be consumers and one day will be industry only. And they're trying to make it more of a festival atmosphere with 
bands and beer and in addition to demoing bikes and checking out gear. And I think maybe that's the better model, right? Like we've seen that with uh, the Cyclofest, uh, which is run by the same company that runs Interbike, but it's in Charlotte. And that is, a, did they do just one media day and I think two consumer days? Mm-hmm. So it's a whole weekend. And it's just all, it's really focused on demoing bikes. And that's what people want. You know, I think that's maybe more important than, you know, just catering to the industry. Cause um, so many of these shops, you know, they deal with, you know, they deal with the big brands. So if you work with, you know, specialized Trek, giant, you're not going to Interbike to see those brands. And if you're a store that's really bought into one of those brands, then you're carrying, if you're a Trek store, you're carrying Bontrager helmets and Bontrager shoes and Bontrager tools and tubes and everything and tires. Like they cover everything you need. So you don't need to necessarily go visit Schwalbe at Interbike, you know, because you're not buying their tires anyway. So what's, what's the point in you going to the show? And even smaller shops that maybe aren't paired up with uh, some of those bigger brands, you know, they, they work with distributors like QBP, you know, which QBP distributes a ton of brands and they also have their own brands, but they also have their own show. They have Frostbike. So, and you know, they kind of do that. It's called Frostbike because it's in Minnesota in what, like January or February. So it's (laughs) really cold, but that's also, you know, logistically a really good time for bike shop owners to get out and check out new product because, you know, that's the slow season. They don't need to wor- necessarily be worried about being at the shop and making money because no one's buying a new bike in January. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens, I guess. Indeed. All right. Finally, I want to talk about the trends from 2017, particularly any trends that surprised us. Greg, what do you think about it? Is there Were there any big trends that you're following this year? You know, I think we talked about a few sort of subtle trends working their way through the industry. But generally, when I think of trends, you know, I think of product. At least maybe that's the way I've been trained over the past few years. And in 2017, I don't think we saw a whole heck of a lot happening. Like there are a few cool things that came out. There are 2.6-inch tires. That's pretty cool. Lots of e-bikes, some long-travel enduro bikes. But other than that... I guess you could say I'm surprised by how boring 2017 was on the product front. This was highlighted by our articles we ran about the most innovative products of uh, 2017. And two of the two or three of the top ones were from last year or iterations <laughs> of products from last year. So it's just like, what happened? <laughs> I think there's other things going on maybe in the industry, but on the product end, nah, it's super exciting. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Greg, on that one. I think more than anything, it just seems like we're honing and refining the bikes and products we currently have, right? Because they're already like so good. All you can do is make marginal improvements at this point. Maybe one thing kind of on the product front that's a little surprising to see is the reemergence of coil sprung suspension, particularly in forks. You know, we've always seen a small contingent of riders using coil shocks, but now we're seeing brand new coil forks and we're seeing coil conversion forks for current air forks coming out. So it seems like people are really looking to make the most of their their suspension. And part of the reason for this, I would say, is bikes are generally lighter overall. So you can kind of spend some of that weight that you're saving back on suspension because as good as a coil shock or fork feels, it's always going to be heavier than air. And one one thing that Jeff kind of touched on earlier, and I would say is a trend 
sort of along the product lines, but we're seeing prices trending downwards. And I know some people may not believe that, but <laughs> it's true. You know, we've kind of seen it on the highest end models over the last two or three years. You know, the upper echelon bikes, instead of being ten or $11,000 like they were maybe in 2015, they're down to a much more reasonable eight to $9,000. Yeah. <laughs> but now we're seeing prices kind of drop across the board. And maybe some of that has, has to do with things have sort of settled down on in regards to standards. You know, there was a lot of like trying to, you, you basically can't buy a brand new bike that doesn't have boost spacing anymore, for instance, whereas there were kind of a couple seasons there where some brands were still doing, you know, 142 rear spacing and then some brands jumped on boost right away. So it was kind of this hodgepodge. And then you have some people, sometimes you have a 142 rear on the frame, but then you have, you know, a boost front because that's the newer fork. So you kind of have this mismatched boost spacing bike. But I think that's been shaken out and generally, and, um, you know, we're starting to see prices come down. You know, plus bikes are, are have seemed to have had their moment in the sun and are kind of stabilizing and we're just mostly seeing the ability to swap between a plus and a 29 so yeah i think that's part of the thing driving prices down and the big thing probably more likely is just increased competition especially from the consumer direct brands you know so we've seen canyon come to the u.s this year we've had coman for a year or two now white bikes, just all these different brands doing consumer direct. But to take Canyon uh, as an example, so they just released a new version of their Spectral trail bike, and it actually went down $200 on the base model for 2018 without any substantial cuts to the spec. Really, the only one I could find was in the wheels, and it was a, you know, a slight downgrade. But you're going from an 11 to a 12-speed drivetrain. You're, you're arguably getting better suspension and the frame was completely redesigned, so it's not like they're saving money on the tooling cost of the frame by just reusing last year's frame. It's a completely new frame, and they still managed to pump out a bike that's 200 bucks less. So that's pretty impressive to me. Um, another brand, you know, they have like Transition. They're now selling directly through their website, and their 2018 prices are way down from 2017. So not, not a totally apples apples comparison, but their new scout trail bike with the top build kit is less than a thousand bucks than the 2017 version. And again, you know, maybe a little slight difference in spec, mostly the wheels, but that's a huge difference in price. That's just good, good news for riders. You know, Intense is doing a similar thing. They're selling direct through their website, cutting their prices substantially. And I think brands have just accepted that this is the way they're going to have to do business now if they're going to stay alive. You can't fight this desire for consumers to to buy online. I mean, that's that's you got to meet consumers where they are. If they're not going to bike shops to buy bikes and they're doing it online, and you want to sell bikes, well, then you better get online. You know, even if they're not pulling completely out of shops, they're doing some sort of hybrid model where they they're selling through their site, but they also have a dealer network. And it's probably really worrying to dealers. I know I would be very worried if I was a dealer and I saw one of my brands starting to sell online. But the writing's been on the wall for a long, long time. This can't come as a surprise to anyone. So they're gonna have to adapt too, you know, so bike shops are gonna have to focus more on service and selling parts and accessories than selling complete bikes. 
Yeah, those are all really good points, Aaron. You actually stole my trend for 2017. That's what I was going to say. You know, one of the examples I was going to pull out is the SRAM Eagle drivetrain. You know, that 12 speeds just came out, what, last year? And now this year, we've already got the GX level, which you can get a whole 12-speed drivetrain for under 500 bucks, I think, uh, which is just crazy because when, like, 11-speed came out, it was years, you know, they slowly trickled that out to, you know, make it more affordable. But this year, this time around, they're not messing around. And like you said, I think a lot of these brands, bike brands, component brands, everybody has realized, you know, people want affordable gear. Like we've here in the U.S., you know, wages are pretty stagnant and people just don't have the purchasing power that they used to. And so, you know, if people are going to keep biking and keep enjoying it like they they just can't spend as much on it anymore and it's really cool it's great for us as consumers um, especially if your wage position is still good that you can buy more bike than you used to so yeah that's that's a huge trend yeah and we're also seeing like you said the technology is sort of maturing and so a lot of the tooling costs and things are have already been paid for. You know, we heard this with Bontrager slashing the price on some of their carbon wheels. You know, they basically what they they knocked like a thousand dollars off a set of carbon wheels, and they said, "Look, we paid for that mold like years and years ago. It's not the bleeding edge like nice and wide rims, but they're completely." nice wheels that were great a few years ago and they're still good today and now you can get them for way way cheaper so hopefully we'll continue to see more of that this year yeah i think like you said i think brands are just realizing maybe they've heard heard it enough from the consumers that like we're tired of all these changing standards we're tired of paying so much for bikes i mean bikes are still expensive but yeah it's good to see that the prices come down and the technology seems to be trickling down down faster like you mentioned with the the gx eagle groups coming out you know i gotta wonder if part of that is a defensive move on sram's part because when they introduced the 11 speed groups a lot of people were still on 10 speed obviously so that kind of opened up this market for these brands to come in and do little hacks where you could get a wider range out of your 10 speed and i think you know maybe they didn't want that to happen with 11 speed as much where people, you know, you can get a, a wider range 11 speed cassette than one that SRAM makes. So they were like, all right, we're going to jump on this thing and, and seize it. And we're going to lock down 12 speed. So where, you know, where, as you're looking like, ah, oh, I could hack together a really, really wide range 11 speed, or I could pay a little bit more and get a full 12 speed drivetrain makes that a little bit of a tougher call. Yeah, the internet is enabling hacks of all <laughs> sorts. I mean, honestly, like all this stuff too. I bet I'm sure we could tie all the threads back to the internet and technology and yeah, just how that's that's affecting everything for sure. So since you stole my idea, or maybe I stole your idea, Aaron, for the the trend this year, but I'm gonna go away from product a little bit and say one of the trends that surprised me is the advent of the mountain bike YouTube star. And, you know, this is something that I, I think I would say that it all really started with Seth when Seth started his Seth's Bike Hacks channel on YouTube. And it was a new format for mountain bike media. You know, before we were seeing a lot of these videos, I mean, we still see them today, but videos produced by Red Bull and a lot of the brands that have like just you know, incredible athletes and rocking soundtracks and high production values and 
videos that are like helicopters. Helicopters. Now they're using drones, so that's a little more accessible. But it's still, you know, we were stuck in this like three minute video sort of format, and then all of a sudden this year, man, like it just exploded. There's all these people you can't even keep track of the number of them now. People that are doing these video blogs regularly, you know, once a week they'll put out a 10 minute video or a 20 minute video. Again, it's just really different. It's like a more personal view of mountain biking, a more amateur grassroots side of it, um, which I think is really exciting and interesting. And sort of tied to this too is like this idea of the van life, you know, people quitting their day jobs and going out and, you know, making a living on the road, doing what they enjoy. And again, you know, technology is enabling this. The internet's allowing people to do this. And I think we'll, we'll see this continue to grow a little bit more over the years. I think, I think the format's going to maybe change a little bit. Uh, it'll be tweaked over time and people will find just the right balance because some, some of these people are more successful than others. But overall, I think it's really cool to see how this is pushing sort of the media landscape for mountain biking. And it's, it's great for, People like our listeners and our readers who they want more information about mountain biking. They want to be entertained more by mountain biking. I think that's a great point. I think the mountain bike media landscape overall is changing pretty quickly for mountain biking. You know, and this is a topic I'm pretty passionate about. But in general, I see the mountain bike media landscape like lagging a couple of years behind media in general. We're not quite on the cutting edge. So, for instance. You know, YouTube vloggers and people making a living was a big thing uh, across all kinds of other industries, just not mountain biking until like this year. So I think based on what I see going on in other parts of the media, we could have some big changes coming to mountain bike media in the next year or two. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. And uh, man, you just reminded me, you know, my kids started watching like two or three years ago, these like toy review videos where like a kid opens a toy that he, you know gets at Walmart or whatever. Um, and there's this kid named Ryan, Ryan's toy reviews. Kid oh, made $11 million last year, yeah. $11 million on YouTube opening toys. I mean, this kid, he's got the greatest life ever. I'm pretty sure, you know, like the video itself is his mom goes and buys him a toy and he gets to open it like a brand new toy every time they make a video. And then he gets paid to do that. Like that kid's really got to figure it out. These mountain bike video <laughs> bloggers, like they're suckers, you know, like they're living a hard life compared to this kid. So, <laughs> well, 2017 has certainly been a crazy year. A lot of surprises, a lot of new things that we've learned this year. Hopefully our listeners have learned as well. We also put together a handy list of some of the top articles that were posted on single tracks this year in case you missed any of them. It's definitely worth a look. So be sure to go on single tracks and check it out. Also, we'd still love it if you would rate the single tracks podcast. This is actually working really well. Those of you that have done it, thank you. Uh, we're continuing to move up and become uh, more and more accessible via various platforms. So please again, take a minute to review and rate the single tracks podcast. We'd really appreciate it. So I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next year. Peace. Peace.